You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hey everyone, welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference, and I'm happy to be joined today by Hugh Thompson, Program Committee Chair for RSA Conference. Hello, Hugh. Hello, Britta. And hello, everybody. Thanks uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, it's great to be here today. And today we have with us two experts in the security space that have been security leaders for quite a while. And they're going to give our audience an inside track on how they look at the process of decision-making. How do they help their organizations as a whole approach security? In the surveys that we've done of our attendees at RSA Conference, uh, and even just watching the traffic of sessions that were attended, we know that this business side of security, this, this organizational planning side of security is of huge interest. So really, really excited to have our two guests today, Marianne and Debbie, Welcome and thank you so much for being here. And not to uh, not to put you on the hot seat, but I, I would love uh, if each of you could introduce yourselves. And Marianne, let me start with you. Terrific! It's uh, it's really a great pleasure to be here. I'm uh, Marianne Davidson. I'm the Chief Security Officer for Oracle. Uh, that's a little different remit that I have than most people with that title, uh, specifically. My area of responsibility is making sure that we engineer security into everything we build, on-premises products, cloud services, consulting engagements, and the company keeps getting bigger and bigger. So I guess that's a bigger job, but fortunately, I've got a really good team and terrific management support, so um, nothing to complain about. It's, It's always fun. Wow, nothing to complain about and always fun, Debbie. Let me, let me with that with that uh, ending, let me turn it over to you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I am Debbie Blythe. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for the State of Colorado. Um, I work within the Governor's Office of Information Technology, and my boss is the state CIO and also the Secretary of Technology, and she works directly for the Governor. We provide IT services as well as security services and security strategy and policy for 17 executive branch um, agencies of state government. And I've been doing this for about four years. And, you know, every now and then I would say I have something to complain about, but overall I really, really love it. It's been really awesome. This is great. I I love the different perspectives that you're bringing to bear here. And that's what when Hugh and I were looking at who could we invite as guests, who's going to have some really interesting, you know, tangible perspectives. Frankly, our industry is full of them, right? Um, There's a lot of great practitioners and professionals here. But but we thought the, the two of you with these different perspectives would be would be really helpful. So thanks again for joining us. Um, wanted to start with so one of the most commonly recurring headlines we've been seeing in the cyber in security industry for forever um, since it became a profession uh, is around workforce shortage. It is a, it's a constant challenge we're facing and how to get the right people to do the jobs that we have at hand. Um, both of you have some experience here, so we wanted to start our conversation here. Um, Debbie, first looking to you, 
what are some of the workforce challenges that you are facing? And from your perspective, what can be done to alleviate the shortage? Yeah, that is a, that's a great topic. Um, this is a huge challenge. And when I talk to my peers, both public sector and private sector, we're all facing the same problem. We're losing valuable resources and we're having a hard time replacing them because it seems like skilled cybersecurity professionals are just too few and in great demand. Um, and it feels like all of my peers and I are kind of competing for those same few talented individuals. So some of the things that we're doing, I am maintaining a close, re a close relationship with a local cybersecurity training academy um, and then other colleges and universities with cybersecurity programs. So when we receive recommendations from these, we're quick to respond because we've had some fantastic and well-qualified candidates who are coming highly recommended from people that we trust. Additionally, we got some new funding last year and we were able to create a veterans internship program so this is a paid internship in which we're bringing in veterans with military cybersecurity knowledge and experience, and we seek to train them on our tools, which are probably more similar to private sector or commercial tools than they've been using, and they bring to us a wealth of knowledge and experience that we're benefiting from in our environment. And while one of the goals of the program is to provide an opportunity for a smooth transition for them into the next phase of their career, Another goal of the program is to create a pipeline of cybersecurity talent that we can hire directly into our program. So we've accomplished quite a bit in a short time with their help. Um, one of the individuals has recently transitioned into a cybersecurity career that he's enjoying in the private sector, and we've got another one that's interviewing for a role within our team currently. Um, and then another thing I wanted to mention is I'm part of a thriving community of women in security where we strive to support and encourage women as they're growing in their careers. And we organize events every few months and we provide career training skills and then also other types of training and experiences to really help promote these women and to encourage them to stay in the field and to grow within the field. Um, and then lastly, something else I do is I love to spend time with students, such as all of our local Cyber Patriots teams, um, explaining the benefits and the types of cybersecurity careers and really encouraging them to consider cybersecurity as a potential career option. So just trying to kind of create that long-term pipeline. Hey, Debbie, that, that's fantastic. I mean, you've got a, a, a really multifaceted approach to this this problem that I think everybody's facing and, and would love to, to get some information on on the second one that you mentioned, uh, the group of, of women that are getting together and sort of sharing experiences and fostering uh, fostering growth in this space. That's an area that, that we're incredibly interested in and RSA conference, and I think it would be uh, be great to get some details from that from you. We'll we'll post it up sure. along with uh, along with the podcast if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk about it. Um, we're a it's a it's basically a chapter of ISSA, and we are the fastest growing women in security chapter in the nation. Um, so yeah, I'd oh. love to share more information about that. 
Okay, terrific. And, and Marianne, let me ask you, that just a, a different side of this same challenge is you have folks in the organization where their job is security, and then you have the majority of folks, of course, inside of an organization where their job is something else. It might be in, in accounting and engineering. It could be uh, in you know, procurement, for example. How do you think about the relationship between security and those folks. You know, it's, for a long time, it's felt like as a security community, we've kind of lamented the user. It's like, geez, if it wasn't for these users making these tricky, bad decisions, we'd uh, we'd be in great shape. But that's a very adversarial viewpoint uh, to our users. How, how do you think about empowering those folks and and harnessing them and bringing them into the mission and really kind of activating them to become part of the part of the solution well i sort of have a, a two-part uh two-part answer to that so 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 just kind of putting it onto to my level with you know where, where my remit is um i have no doubt and that we're we're going to need more cybersecurity professionals for the foreseeable future i mean every day you know most com- all companies and organizations have an IT backbone. We keep putting, you know, sensors, Internet of Things. You know, this, this is just exponential. But having said that, uh, I would say 90% of life isn't showing up at solving the right problem. So while we're going to need more professionals in, in a strange way, we should need less of them, and we would if we would solve the right problem. And that goes back to, to what, I, what I talk about, a culture of security. So, for example, in my organization, obviously not every developer we hire is a security expert, but and yet we have to engineer and deliver and maintain things in a secure fashion. Well, how do we do that? You have to affect a cultural transformation because universities don't teach this stuff. They really don't. You can gra- you graduate, you know, yeah. really marvelously brilliant um, computer science graduates who don't know anything about security, or if they do take a class, they think it's learning about encryption instead of understanding secure engineering which is kind of like graduating civil engineers who've never taken a structures class. I mean, that's, that's not going to be healthy for the ecosystem. So we affect that cultural transformation by, you know, first of all, we have a whole program around, well, we, we teach people secure coding practice. We have a whole body of knowledge around that. We make sure they use tools to try to find things. We require them to do, you know, architectural risk analysis before they build something. You've got to think about how it's going to be broken. How is somebody going to attack this thing? So, so part of this is to make sure that what comes out at the other end of the pipe is pretty secure, but it's also to affect that cultural transformation. So, for example, we have boots on the ground, people who are security leads, senior people in a larger organization who are responsible for administering our program, and then within smaller components, we have what we call SPOCs, no, not Vulcans, uh, security <laughs> points of contact. So those are the people who are evangelists for how we do what we do. So that, that's kind of the micro level, and that's part of that cultural trans, transformation because this, this is really important to the company. And if you don't you know, build the processes and reinforce those messages and have, if you will, evangelists out there, you're not going to be successful. And I, I'm certainly not going to go to my boss and say, you know, I need to hire uh, one person to look over the shoulder of every single developer who's writing code to make sure it's secure. That's not going to work, and it won't scale. So, so that's part of it. On a larger company level, you were talking about, you know, the accountants and the this person and the that person. Uh, one of my counterparts has a similar program, what they call information security managers. 
So lines of business have people whose job it is to think about the security implications, policies, practices inside lines of business. So it really is a cultural problem as much as anything because not everybody has the same level of responsibility, but everybody has some responsibility. And and the most successful organizations I can think of have strong cultures. So, for example, you know, I was a former uh, military officer in the Navy, but I really love the Marine Corps. And the Marines have this very strong warrior ethos, every Marine a rifleman. So every one of them goes through the same basic training so every one of them can defend any other one. And that's what makes them so good in part. There are a lot of other things that make them good. But that's sort of the same thing here. We can't, you know, I don't bash users because, hey, you know, we're all users. We've all, you know, even, even very smart security people can fall for a phishing attack. But it, it's having those cultural norms, uh, instilling it in your, in your uh, organization, reinforcing it, uh, and making sure everybody has some responsibility for security. It isn't the same as, say, the, the, the guy at the front who, or, or gal who's the guard, but everybody has some responsibility. And, and if you build your organization and your process and your practices, you can reinforce that culture. And if you don't have that culture, you're going to fail because you will never have enough people to make this right or enough cybersecurity professionals if we don't go back and start solving some of those other problems like, hey, for God's sakes, universities, please start teaching this stuff so that when, when somebody comes out of a university program, they're going to understand whatever I build, however cool or neat or innovative it is, and we love that stuff, it has to be secure. And I've got the tech tools and the techniques and the mindset to do that. So, Marian, I want to jump in there. You've delivered some really memorable, highly rated sessions at RSA Conference over the years, from Monty Python and the Holy RFP <laughs> to um, we had a regulatory rumba, you know, dance time, to Joshua DDoSing Jericho. You, you see cybersecurity in everything, and even some of those examples you just went through. Take me, if you can, into your head here in understanding how other disciplines can be brought to security where where clearly security things are happening every day and learning these lessons with how it's approached elsewhere, how that can start activating muscle memory in our security responses. Because you do. You see the world through a different lens. Uh, well, p- well, part of it is I, I kind of always laugh when somebody says that I'm a security expert. I, I think it's more correct to say a lot of the experts work for me and I learn from them. So that's part of it. When, when one of the hackers, I have a group of ethical hackers who work for me, and of course they're really good at breaking stuff and a good cause, and I'm not the technical whiz they are, to, to, to put it kindly. Not even close. But, but I ask them questions, and so when they explain to me how they did something, and they're very good at it, like putting it in terms mere mortals can understand, a lot of times I'll repeat it back to them. So this is like that, you know, and to make sure that I understood it and I can express it in a way where I understood what they did, and they, they'll come back and say, yeah, that's right, you got it. So that's the point here is that most of the people we deal with aren't experts in this. So if you go in and say, we need to have a secure ITP story, it's really critical that we need to have a secure ITP story. Well, what's that? Well, the Internet Protocol. Protocol. <laughs> I don't know what that means. So using analogies, first of all, it helps me get it. And second of all, it helps people, the penny drop for people. You can put things in terms that are more familiar to them. And that's, I like doing it. I also like the, the humorous aspects of it, obviously. But also it helps, it does help people understand it. And, and one of the examples I used was, I think the development manager thought I was insane when I said this, but 
it was a number of years ago, there was a, a product sector we were thinking about going into. And I, I looked at the development manager. He was trying to make the business case to management. We need to build our, our, our resources out here. I said, well, how did the Marines hold Guadalcanal? I said, well, what does that have to do with anything? No, and I said, this is really important. This executive is a former Marine. He will understand this analogy. And, and the story was, which is true, they took the airstrip, Henderson Field. They didn't hold the whole island. They held what was strategic. That is strategic because with that airfield, they could launch planes. They can, you know, fend off uh, uh, ships coming through the um, down the Solomon Islands. It, it 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 was so. The point is, it said we go if that sector that we want to go into is strategic. If you hold that, you will hold the whole island in this larger security space. And so all these months of having a discussion with the executive. And I, I asked that question, how did the Marines hold Guadalcanal? They held Henderson Field. This is Henderson Field. He got it. He got it immediately. And it was about a five-minute discussion after months and months and months of, I don't understand why we need to go into the sector. So that worked. And, and it, so, again, I put something in terms he could understand that was directly analogous to what we were trying to do. Got it. And that's really helpful. I mean, it's helpful to me to understand geeky technical things. It's helpful to the average person if you can explain things in language that they understand. Yeah, I, I really like that. And you know, it is amazing how much of security management now comes down to the art of storytelling, the art of translation, the art of kind of just making people feel viscerally about something. And Debbie, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, this is, to me, this, this quickly moves into the budget conversation, right? So if you're the security executive in charge, you see a set of risks that are unmitigated or undermitigated. You now have to tell the story or present a case. Maybe it's to the board of directors. Maybe it's to some group in the executive suite. How, how do you go about that? Because I, I know this is one of the biggest challenges that folks to, that come to RSA conference have. They, they, they feel that there's, hey, here's all this residual risk, and let me print out for you a 300-page uh, set of logs of people that have tried to attack us in the last, uh, you know, seven minutes. And, and this is what I'll use for justification, but it's been um, – it's been a real challenge in this space with a, a lack of great metrics on how do you report out to folks that are deciding, you know, is a dollar going to go to security or is a dollar going to go to somewhere else? T tell me about your experiences with that and what, what would you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Um, so a couple of things that I think about. One is at the state of Colorado, we utilize a framework, which is the 20 critical security controls. Um, and what we found is the framework is a very good representation of us being fiscally responsible, investing in those controls that have highest value for attack mitigation. And then it gives us the ability to sort of benchmark where we're at and show how we're improving over time. So just kind of having that, that framework, that standard has been really helpful. Um, but the other thing that we found is having a cybersecurity strategy in place. So at the state of Colorado, we have a multi-year cybersecurity strategy entitled Secure Colorado. 
And this strategy is meant to do two things. One is to, um, to have ongoing cybersecurity improvement across the state. Um, so this sort of directs that. This is the strategy and plan for that. But the second thing is to establish a budget for funding those ongoing cybersecurity improvements. So with a strategy in place, we've been very, very successful at getting our funding requests approved because the state leadership and the legislature are able to see exactly how we plan to spend the money. They're able to tell that we are being very thoughtful, coordinated, and fiscally responsible to maximize the funds over a period of time. And they're also able to follow our progress, observe our success, and that has made them willing to approve budgetary increases every single year. And in fact, last year, we experienced our biggest budget increase ever. We increased our budget by 30% and seven new full-time employees. So I was incredibly proud of that success wow. and what we've been able to achieve with that funding. But I do participate with a lot of my other state CISO peers across the nation. In fact, with all of them, we participate in a cybersecurity survey every two years. And we were actually able to draw a direct correlation in the very last survey between those states that have an, had that had an approved cybersecurity strategy in place and those states that were the best funded. So it became very, very clear that having an approved cybersecurity strategy in place is really the key to having good funding for your program. Which makes good, good sense, yeah, um, that's great. So one of the recurring themes in today's conversation is, is how both of you are looking to broaden your security tent, so to speak, looking at your whole organization as part of the solution, um, really building it into their DNA and problem-solving approaches and then learning lessons from other disciplines. You both really seem to be actively looking around constantly for opportunities to further these, your cybersecurity efforts, uh, which, is, which is great. Seemingly partners would be an important piece in that puzzle. Um, Debbie, how have you worked with partnerships? What kinds of partnerships maybe are you leveraging to, um, you know, beyond you talked about some of the interesting work being done with universities and others to help the pipeline issue, but, but more broadly speaking about partnerships, how have you looked at that to improve your program as a whole? Oh, absolutely. So we have a Colorado Information Security Advisory Board that is made up of public sector and private sector business security and privacy professionals that I gather this board together at least once a year where we kind of go through what our strategy is and go through what we're kind of thinking about and what we believe we should be focusing on and kind of run it through this team of folks. It's been so incredibly helpful because I really try to to select people to be on this board who represent different sectors. So, for example, at the state of Colorado, we have a lot of healthcare information. And so, just recently, I had to add some new membership to my board and really sought to add folks with healthcare expertise. Um, just to ensure I was really thinking about various, you know, regulatory requirements, the different privacy nuances, um, different types of security strategies that I should be incorporating. 
the board has been tremendously helpful in that they bring each of their unique perspectives and it helps me to factor it into my strategy. And then additionally, when I go in front of the legislature and ask for funding, it's been very, very helpful to say, I've vetted my strategy through this esteemed group of professionals, and they're all in agreement that these are the things that we need to focus on. These are the things that we need to um, improve over time. So, um, you know, to me, that's been one of our one of our big partnership successes is the Colorado Information Security Advisory Board. Marianne, let me just build on that theme and ask, you know, what I think is one of the most challenging things that folks come into RSA conference with, which is balance. How do you balance the set of possible things that you could be working on? Like I think about you in particular, you were a pioneer in the software security, the application of software security on scale. You took over the physical security piece. You've got to deal with all the normal day-to-day security elements of IT security. And by the way, kind of massive shifts to cloud and things like that during that process. Now, a lot of my friends that are in um, the chief security officer role, they're getting more and more things added to their plate. They're, They're having to now deal with the physical security pieces. They're working more with R&D on the software security pieces. How do you prioritize things when you have so many things to look at is one question. But I think that the bigger question is, you know, are we in general, when when you look over your peers, are we focusing on the right things? Or are there things that are just being neglected that we should be refocused on? Well, I'll, I'll, uh, again, that's sort of a, a two-part answer. Um, in terms of focus, ha- happily enough, uh, I don't have physical security or IT security, but uh, they are they are allies. We we you know we we play nicely together. We actually have a, a security oversight committee that's chaired by one of our CEOs. So where all the lines of business kind of get together and have these these kind of focus areas on on security. So uh, a lot of my peers I deal with very frequently, and and that kind of gets back to how do I prioritize things. Well, since this is our core business, and once again using analogies, although this is a good one, it, it, a lot of it is about economics. So when, when I look at what are we going to do, I say, if I do this, either it's going to lead to a good benefit for Oracle or lead to significant cost avoidance. Or I'll look at what is the opportunity cost of putting resources on A versus B. So I do do an economic analysis. And fortunately, that makes it pretty easy to justify a lot of what we do because it is cost avoidance. Uh, I mean, certainly in the on-premises world, no customer ever calls me up and says, I'm really bored this week. Don't you have more patches for me to apply? No one says that, right? People like nice, stable systems. So, and, it, and it's very expensive to remediate something after the fact. It may be hundreds and hundreds of patches to fix one issue, right? So there's a really good incentive. You know, nobody's perfect and we're not, but there is a really good economic incentive, not to mention brand and, and you know, customers, to try to get it right the first time. And of course, with the move to cloud, that's, that's even more true because we're, we're the ones running it now, right? So we have even more of a vested interest to try to get it right the first time. So economic arguments, and it's not you know, just cost benefit, it's some of these other, other, uh, other terminologies I talk about. So for example, 
automation is your friend. You know, say if I get one person to do X, I can either hire six people to do it manually or I can hire one person to find a way to automate it. Hey, you know, that's going to scale more. Guess what? That's, that's the argument that wins. Um, so, so as far as the things that we should be looking at or not but aren't as an industry, this is kind of a tricky one because certainly technology is, has really changed our world. A lot of it is marvelous and innovative. But we don't always look at some of the, should we say, the, the unintended consequences of it. And one of those, back to you know, financial market terms, is what, what I would call systemic risk. So the, the, one of the difficulties we're having with, with making absolutely everything be able to connect to the Internet is that it is an un, indefensible attack surface. And one of the things they tell you in financial market theory is you, you, have, you can't mitigate systemic risk, you have to avoid it. That's why the financial, uh, the financial markets have certain regulations, because it is a system, and the whole system collapses. There's nothing you could have done you know, to balance that risk. So that is one of the concerns I would least like us to have a discussion about as we, as we you know, put, put sensors and everything. Certainly, there's a lot of good applications, such as, you know, I live in a beautiful, beautiful place, lots of nature, and I don't know anybody who wouldn't, who, who, who wouldn't feel that it's a really good use of technology to have a sensor on a pipeline someplace so you know if there's a problem with the pipe and it can get addressed before you have a large oil spill, right? That, that's a really good use of technology. Maybe not such a good use of technology, maybe, is, is making your refrigerator Internet accessible. And I know there are ones that are now. I'm not sure that solves a useful problem. Plus, you have things like somebody using those to mount a denial of service attack. And really, I don't want to worry about my neighbor's toaster attacking my refrigerator, okay? I'm just saying. So, so there, there, are, there are issues with this. Uh, and that is one of the things I really wish we would have as an industry to talk about. Are there risks that we are assuming that we honestly cannot mitigate uh, or, or we cannot mitigate to acceptable level? And plus, what are those other externalities and other economic terms? So, for example... Let's say my refrigerator would normally last for 20 years. Probably not if the software has to be upgraded, which means we're going to have more things in landfills. That's not a security issue per se, but it is an externality of, of, the, of the use of technology. So, again, am I down on this? No. Do I think we should be thoughtful? Yes. Do I think we should have discussions about – technologists always think the answer is more technology. But that isn't always the case. So I, I just want us to be thoughtful about this, and security professionals should have a voice at that table. Not, not to be the little person, oh, we can't do anything because it's not secure. Nothing, you know, there's no business without assuming some risk. You can't grow your business. You can't innovate. There's always some risk. The question is, what risks, what, what are these risks? Are they acceptable risks? Can they reasonably be mitigated? Or are we creating, again, something called systemic risk, which has to be avoided by definition and can't be mitigated? And that's, that's, a, that's a really thoughtful discussion I think we all need to have. Marianne, yeah. I, I, just, I, I just love that. And sorry, sorry, to, sorry to jump in, but this has got to be a session at RSA conference because some of the stuff that you're talking about, you know, I think about the refrigerator manufacturer, for example, they're being incentivized to connect their refrigerator to the internet because they know when people show up at a Best Buy or a Fry's, they're probably, you know, they just they look 
checklist, right? And oh, is this this one's connected to the internet and this one isn't? And they're the same price, so I don't know what I'll use it for, but that sounds like a great idea. And there's not really any disincentive in the market that would correct that kind of behavior. So I'm just uh, just jumping in with uh, with with maybe a note. Uh, to follow up for the next uh, next conference, I think that would be that'd be amazing. But sorry to interrupt. Oh no, not at all. I was done. I said, you know, kind of. You really? Why does my refrigerator need a firewall? Okay, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was thinking too about something you said earlier about um, creating a culture of security across the enterprise. Um, and thinking about systemic risk, and one of the things that we talk about at the State of Colorado is all of the various pieces of data that we have on the residents who live here. And so one of the ongoing conversations that we have with our agencies is, you know, what type of data do you need to be collecting, and is there any way that we can limit the collection to only what's necessary? Um, Because certainly the more data we collect, um, the more data we are charged to protect. So um, it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit similar in that, you know, when you're thinking about reducing systemic risk, um, that's another area you can think about um, is what type of data are you collecting? That's a great point. Yeah. No, this is, I hate, I hate ending this one. We've got such meaty, meaty, meaty conversations. And as you said, Hugh, there's, there's, always our physical meetings. There's RSA Conference Singapore in a couple weeks. There's U.S., which our call for speakers will be opening in the imminent future. Um, but but my takeaway from, from listening to both of you, which is great, the broad things that you're thinking about on a daily basis, um, it, it is all rolling up really to that, that risk management equation, it feels like. And, you know, from a personnel perspective, from a technology perspective, from a process perspective, it, it's all it's all balancing that risk and, and, and how you're looking at it. And I've really appreciated you taking us into some of your thought processes, um, the different groups you're working with, the different um, entities you're engaging with. Um, the wheels the wheels are turning here. So thank you both, um, Debbie and Marianne, for joining us as always. Uh, thank you to our guests, uh, our, our listeners, for being here. And please join us for additional podcasts as well. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>